Welcome to Holyrood and Gagged, the Laura Koonsberg political word cloud of political podcasts. I'm your host, Brian Finlay, and joining me this evening is Connor Beaton. Hello, hello. Hiya. And Kat Carey. Hello, hello. Hiya. Sorry, I don't have any puns today because I'm really bad at writing them, so we're just going with your standard names. How are you doing this rather wet, quite windy, quite chilly Sunday? I'm really feeling the dark closing in. I, I was like, oh no, it's so long till December 21st. <laughs> That's today so it's really hitting me oh yeah i winter. put the heating on for for 20 minutes and then i felt bad and I turned it off again this is it's wild isn't it because it's like such a guilt so you're like oh let's put the heating on for half an hour and then you're like oh better turn that off it's getting a little bit too warm in here start to feel <laughs> the pound signs going up well see yeah. this time of year i mean my clothes, like all of our family's clothes, get so like gross if you don't turn the heat on for a little tiny bit. So I don't feel that that guilty about it. I just get annoyed because I could I can't live in a cold house. I grew up in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I tend to have my heating on only when I'm drying washing because I feel like it's a justified reason for putting it on. But it's like it could be cold and I've no washing to do, and I'm like, well, can't turn the heating on. You don't need it. Uh, no, I feel that entirely because I've started to have that putting the clothes up to to dry and they get a bit fusty before they get dry. Yeah, I can't. Uh, I'm, I I hate this time of year. Um, when it's I mean, like, cause I love Christmas time. You know, I'll be I'll be mm-hmm. happy for the couple of weeks around that, but I hate how dark and wet it becomes. Yeah, I think this week it's really become quite real. I think because we had the kind of mild September into October, and then it's kind of this is the first really cold, really damp time that we've had but there'll be lots of political chat here everyone's keeping cozy we're ready to chat this is why scotland needs harvest festivals i'm telling you that's the only thing that makes this time of year exciting and where i'm from and it would be great and it's supposed to be rainy and like this and cold Mm. what do you do at a harvest festival you ride on like a like a tractor will pull a wagon full of hay bales and you'll ride through the fields. You can go pumpkin picking. Um, sometimes they'll put up hay bales into like stuff kids can go through. So parents can let their kids go do stuff. And you like besides apples, you can get or besides pumpkins, you can get apples, hot apple cider, fresh donuts made apple cider donuts. It's very lovely. <laughs> There's a few places that you can kind of do that kind of stuff. There's a place, Kearney Fruit Farm in Fife, that we used to go when I was a kid. And they have like a great big hedge maze that they spend all year preparing. And they do pumpkin picking. And they do, um, you, you can ride on the back of a, a tractor, pulls you around. It's just like an ordinary Scottish tractor. <laughs> I mean, we need to normalize that and make it more yeah. uh, accessible for everyone. Because it's just, it, it it keeps your spirits up, I guess. And they only yeah. do it for the kids now, I think. So, you know, I want to be the adult uh, tractor wagon guy. Yeah, I, I I agree. I think I think we definitely need to come up with something in January, <laughs> you know, to get through that that time of year. But um, like this time of year, I'm I'm really enthusiastic about the soup making, the candles, the reading, the blanket, the nights in. I'm quite happy with that. And then Christmas time is quite nice. And then it's just that January, February lull that's uh we need we need uh we definitely need something there. 
especially well, in I'm Scotland. Fine, I've got a January birthday, so you know that'll be my little spirit lifter at that time of year. Um, my partner also's birthday's in January, so I probably should have picked up on that. <laughs> right in the middle of January. <laughs> LOL. Oh, mine's in November, and if it wasn't, I'd probably not get through every year until December. Oh. Yeah. On that note, let's get ungagged. Okay, okay. So I'm hosting today, so I'm going to read out segment one. Okay, so Labour has beaten the SNP to win the Rutherglen and Hamilton West by-election. Labour's candidate, Michael Shanks, won the Westminster seat by 17,845 votes, which was more than double the SNP's candidates, Kate Luden. And the result was a swing of 20.4% from SNP to Labour. Labour leader Sir Keir Starmer said it was a seismic night for the people. Uh, for that, people in Hamilton West had sent a clear message. He went on to say, "I have always said that winning back the trust of people in Scotland is essential. Tonight's victory is the culmination of three and a half years of hard work and humility on that journey." SNP hopeful Katie Luden's eight hundred and thirty. 8,399 votes, which was 27.6% of the vote, was down by 16.6% on the 2019 general election. Hamza Youssef uh, described the defeat as disappointing for the party. Youssef also said that uh, uh, we're always very difficult for us and that Labour had benefited from the collapse in the Tory vote. The turnout was low at 37.19% versus 66.5% at the general election in 2019. Connor, what's your thoughts? Um, so I should I should preface this, I think, by saying I'm, I'm not an SNP supporter, really. Uh, I've never, I've actually never voted for the SNP in an election. Um, and even though I'm an independent supporter, it's just never been, uh, I've never been one for the party. Um, and I, I'll say that, despite that, I find that result really depressing. Um, because I think what it represents is it's a shift in the politics in Scotland to the right. Um, this is a seat where in 2017, Labour won it narrowly. And that was in a campaign where broadly Labour was was to the left of the SNP, challenging them from the left. Now you've got uh, Labour challenging the SNP from the right and winning by a much larger majority, as you said, Brian, twice as many votes as the SNP candidate, which there's, there's no way to spin that as not a really large defeat. Um, now, in terms of the candidate, I don't really know a lot about him, so I'm not going to focus on, but I know that during the campaign, uh, the candidate and Scottish Labour tried to distance themselves from bits of UK party policy that they thought was you know, unpopular in Scotland, things like the two-child cap. I saw that Michael Shanks came out and said that he supported gender self-ID, for example, which the SNP uh, has proposed and Labour has opposed. Um, but I don't really think that as an MP in Parliament, he's likely to break the Labour whip. I can't see it happening. And so this whole thing just seems like a, you know, a bit of a phony war when what's really happened is that Keir Starmer and his programme has been bolstered by this. Um, I think what will be really interesting is the question of how the SNP responds to that, because there's been, of course, everyone's jumping on this result to say this validates everything that we've already been saying for years and years and years. So you've got people who are like, oh, this shows that we really need people like Kate Forbes uh, in prominent positions rather than uh, Hamza Youssef. And, you know, I don't know what planet those people are living on. Um, the idea that uh, what people really want is this kind of um, pro-business, conservative, 
socially conservative politics in the middle of a cost of living crisis, I think it's just completely misreading the room. Um, but I've also seen people in the SNP who are saying, okay, maybe we need to back off um, with independence for a bit. Maybe we need to focus down on the cost of living crisis and stop talking about the constitution. And I think that is wrong in an entirely different way, which is um, actually what's, what's the point of voting for the SNP instead of the Labour Party? If your pitch is not about independence, if it's not about the fact that um, no matter what we do in a small way to address uh, the cost of living crisis in the UK, there's a broader crisis that the UK is not responding to. Um, there is an uh, economic crisis, there's a climate crisis, um, and tinkering around the edges isn't really what's going to get us there. We need to actually connect uh, the whole structural constitutional reform of the UK with the with meeting people's basic needs, you know, and, and improving their quality of life. And um, I think it's a mistake to just back off the constitutional thing instead of actually maybe reassessing, are we putting it clearly enough, explaining why independence is relevant to people's day-to-day -day lives? Um, I would really, I really hope <laughs> that the SNP doesn't take their own, um, their own lesson from this and move to the right. Um, but that's, yeah, that's, that's all I can say is I'm, I'm, I hope that this doesn't just pull everyone further to the right. Yeah. Cap. You know, all these people calling for Kate Forbes to be in government sure have terrible memories since she was offered rural CABSEC and she turned it down. And I just like to remind all of them of that. Um, I'm trying to find humor in some of the calls from the usual suspects, uh, the social conservatives, the mouth, the shell shills, the mouthpieces of oil and gas, um, all those folks. They're all over right now, right? But I don't think that these people reflect. I mean, I think it's all over the press because they don't really reflect the way the party is going. It, does that make sense? It's not a government minister or the first minister saying these reactionary things. It's people trying to gain power for their own interests or the interests of business or big oil and gas energy companies. And, or the, you know, they're what, I saw something um, where it said the SNP needs to regain its soul, and <laughs> I'm sorry, but if if so, if a soul has is centrist, then <laughs> I'd rather be soulless. Maybe <laughs> um, don't want a centrist soul. Good God, um, takeaways from the by election. I think you read out a lot of numbers, Brian. I was. I was out there, I, I went out and campaigned once in Rutherglen and Hamilton West, and I was really hoping that we could lose by a small margin. That that was the best thing I, I thought we could come out with. And it didn't happen. Labor had quite a large margin. I still think a lot of that had to do with the previous MP, with Margaret Ferrier. I just think that the SMP were never, ever going to win that seat. So the reactionary SMP takes from this are completely disingenuous, I think. Um, so are the takes from labor that this is a, this is because they've worked hard. It's, it's, it's because Margaret Ferrier had COVID and went on a train, you know, when, when COVID or traveled to London, she did a lot of stuff with COVID when, when people were terrified of their, their grand, their granny sign. Um, my biggest takeaway is that it's time to press. And it's not time to relax. It's not time to like all of a sudden change the tactic, right? 
And I think that what you said already, Connor, about how front and center independence should be, I've already seen people who I agree with on a lot of things politically um, say we need independence front and center because it wasn't front and center for this and we lost. I don't think that we should take this loss. We shouldn't take too many lessons out of it, I suppose. I think it is important. I think we talked last week about how the SNP supports abolishing the House of Lords and proportional representation. I think that should be maybe lifted up. I think that the front of a lot of SNP leaflets should say, should have a picture of Keir Starmer saying, Annis will say whatever I say, uh, as, as he was quoted during this campaign. And it should really be about if you want your voice heard in Westminster, if you want PR, if you want to abolish the House of Lords, if you want to abolish the two-child cap, or at least mitigate it, the SP has to be in Westminster, regardless on your stance for of independence. Because I think the route the route to independence that the SP is taking and other parties as well is a peaceful democratic road. I, I agree that that is the road we should take. I don't want war. I don't want it to be anti-democratic. But I also think that that means it's a marathon. It's a sp not a sprint. So everybody who thinks it's just around the corner is either lying to themselves or to everyone. Um, they're either lying to you or they're lying to themselves. I, I just think that it is a cost of living crisis. We do need to worry about heated people having heat in their homes about being able to put food on the table and having a better life. And I, I'm not one of those people who thinks that unless you put independence, 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 that means you don't, you don't want it. I think it's not an end goal. I think it's to have a better life and to better represent the people of Scotland. So yeah, I, I don't think, I don't think putting independence front and center is going to get more voters out to the polls, but what do I know? Yeah, my initial reflections were when I seen the result, I was surprised at, at how big the gap was between the SNP and Labour. I think I've always sort of said that it was it was going to be close, but it, it could have been any winner. But I think with a, such such a significant um, result in, in favour of Labour, I think that that, was, that definitely took me by surprise. Um, I, again, just from what you've been saying there, Kat, that I think... We need to, people need to stop extrapolating things from a particular by-election, which is almost half the turnout of the general election 2019. We've got a seat. Um, I used to live in the seat. I used to live in Rutherglen. Uh, and Rutherglen is one of the first seats to be called in a general election in Scotland normally. And it's a bit of a, it can tell us what's going to happen in Scotland. So 2017, Labour took the seat and then Labour won, you know, a handful, I think it was about seven or eight MPs. So it starts to tell us what, what's happening. Um, so it is quite a significant seat and it does move a lot more than what, what than, than some of the other seats in the central belt does. Um, but also you don't want, and I really hope the SNP doesn't do what the Tories done after the Uxbridge by-election, right? So from, from the opposite direction. So it's like a mass panic when something happens that you didn't expect to happen to that extent and policies get chucked or, you know, extreme changes happen based on one area within the electorate. So I would definitely caution about that. But I think there is definitely broader discussion that needs to happen. And I agree, Kat, that a lot of people don't know these things about the SNP that the PR is is in there as well. And it's almost like 
for me, the 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 uh, quest for independence needs to be almost like an it's like a, an agreed assumption, right? We want to get independence, but in the meantime, we can do this, we can achieve that, we can challenge this, and we can change that. And and I would also, you know, say things that the SNP should be trying to achieve within the Scottish government. I think that if they were doing a little bit more than what they could be right than what they are doing right now, I think that that would actually be a lot more aspirational, which is a favourite word of, of certain Westminster parties, for people to go out and vote for them in Westminster. But uh, we need to remember also that even when the Scottish Parliament was, you know, the electorate was voting for SNP, people were still voting Labour in Westminster. Okay, so it's two completely different parliaments with a different makeup. So this could be the start <clears throat> of a shift again, where people perhaps move back to that, voting more for Labour for Westminster, voting more SNP in the Scottish Parliament. We don't know. And these polls that are coming out that's putting Labour slightly ahead of the SNP in Holyrood, of course, we're halfway in bet between a cycle, right? So, you know, you take that with a pinch of salt. But also it's just about seeing, is that actually what's going to happen? Or is that just on the back of this result in, in Rutherglen? So I think it's it's like fever pitch. Everything is fever pitch just now this week because it's like, oh, Labour's back. Well, they've got two MPs. Like, everybody just, just simmer down. Take a minute. Doubled. Doubled, Brian. They doubled. Actually, by 100%, they have more MPs, which... You know, I think for the fate of Labour since 2015, this is this is a real success, right, for them. But I think everybody just needs to simmer down. I think the SNP definitely needs to do some thinking. Um, and I think I would say it's more about the communication and more about what they should be delivering and how they communicate what they are delivering in the Scottish government in a clear and concise way. And like you said, changing the leaflets up a bit. The 2017 loss in, in Rutherglen was because it was the same recycled campaign that had been done in 2015. There was nothing new. There was no new message. Um, and, and it is challenging in Westminster for a party like the SNP to make a huge amount of impact. So I think that there definitely needs to be a change in tact there. I don't know what what what, uh, what you think, Connor. It's a shame we don't have David here, our man in Rutherglen and Hamilton West, <laughs> to, uh, to share his thoughts. But I mean, I, I agree. Um, that, you know, don't get too carried away by it. And I think that's something applies to the Labour Party as well because I could very easily, I think already you can see certain people in the Labour Party maybe misinterpreting what's happened. They think that they've defeated nationalism writ large rather than just the SNP. And of course, you know, not, not that I want to interrupt you anyway when they're making a mistake, um, but that's obviously not what's happened. Um, two things I think are worth noting. One is um, I don't think we can get away with some of the fact that support for the SNP has slipped because it's not just the by-election result that shows that. There's also polling for both the Scottish Parliament and Westminster elections that shows that that's happened and that the, the Labour Party has gained a lot. And it's, it's true enough for Hamza Yusuf to say Labour has also gained from the Conservatives in a big way. The fact that the Conservatives lost their deposit in Rutherglen Hamilton West, you know, that was at least one thing that we could all uh, enjoy. Hey! Um, <laughs> um, but like, it, it, you can't get away from that it has slipped and it's, and it's slipped in a way that support for independence hasn't. So there's a, a bigger gulf than maybe any time in the last uh, 10 years between support for independence and support for the SNP. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Uh, and I think it reflects probably a, a way in which support for independence is becoming re uh, representative of a broader section of the population than just SNP voters. And that's actually probably an asset because it can't really you can't really build a country off the back of just one political party um, and have it be a healthy democracy. Um, 
but the second thing I think is in terms of what the SNP put forward in the election, um, if we look back to the 2014 referendum and the context in which that was held, uh, we were in the early days of the Conservative-led coalition administering a really harsh austerity programme. Uh, we were in the context of the UK having a, you know, practically a humanitarian crisis where people in particular on welfare uh, were being sanctioned. We were going to food banks at a time where the food bank infrastructure was not at the scale that it is now. And of course, it's a it's a abysmal thing that so the scale it is now. Um, and the Labour Party's answer to all of this was actually we are so pro austerity. We're just as pro austerity as the Tory Party is, and we're going to be just as ruthless. Uh, and people came to independence because they were looking for an alternative to that. And we can't get away from the fact that right now. The Labour Party is actively saying that they are so committed to fiscal responsibility now that they are not going to invest in the British economy and they're not going to invest in infrastructure. You know, the, the Tories have just cancelled HS2. What a brilliant example of like the UK is actually investing billions in an infrastructure project that is going to be good for the economy. And um, let alone the fact that it was never going to be to Scotland. Of course, that's a different thing. Um, but they're cancelling that because the, the sense of ambition and the sense of uh, uh, you know, the, the economic imperative of investment has just been hollowed out of the UK uh, as a result of the, the, the drive into neoliberalism. And the Labour Party can't even bring itself to say it would reverse that. The Labour Party can't bring itself to say that it would invest money that we need to transition away from, um, you know, North Sea oil and the fossil fuel industry generally. Uh, you know, it's this short termism and it's just this miserable, you know, nothing good can happen here. And the thing that scares me is the idea that people can actually be so beaten down that they can think that's the best we can hope for. Um, and it's in that context that the SNP or other independence parties, the Scottish Greens, the grassroots movement has to actually say, this is not good enough. Uh, we want people in Scotland to, we, we want a massive state-led investment instead of austerity. We actually want to create jobs, well-paid jobs, green jobs. We want to actually provide a future for communities that are currently um of North Sea oil and gas workers because the thing is if there's not a just transition that doesn't mean those jobs are going to stay there forever it just means that when they inevitably go in the next few decades and um, as a result of global shifts um, in energy then there's going to be nothing waiting for them um, so I think we've got to get that message across as much as possible because um, like I really don't want to see a world in which we have Keir Starmer in number 10 Downing Street and nothing much happens and you know, it's very easy in that circumstance for people's discontent to get channeled into, you know, an upsurge of racism, an upsurge of anti-immigration sentiment, right-wing populism. Um, you know, we need to be on the offensive from the other side to prevent that from happening. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Anything else to add? Nope. No. It's just nope. it's just a by-election, everyone. Simmer down. There is some messages there. But let's 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 not go fever pitch. Let's not go fever pitch. Eh? Okay, next story. Okay, thousands of refugees face homelessness, and the UK government strive to clear clear the backlog of asylum claims. Uh, plus fifty thousand uh, plus refugees in the UK could face homelessness by the end of this year unless ministers take urgent steps to support them as it clears the asylum backlog. 
uh, the Red British, uh, the British Red Cross has warned the government has pledged to access uh, to process all legacy uh, asylum applications made before the 28th of June 2022 by the end of the year. The Home Office has sped up the 28-day move-on process, so that's the period after which people are forced to leave their state-provided accommodation once granted refugee status, leaving some people with little as seven days to move out. The Red Cross is calling for the government to immediately reverse the changes uh, to the move-on period <clears throat> and extend it to 56 days to allow more time for newly recognised refugees to find housing, employment and benefits. Cap. Yes, this is one of the ones that I, I flagged. Um, so what is, what is the UK government's next non... I mean, it did make headlines, but it doesn't create the uproar that all the stop the boat stuff does um they're basically saying all these people that have been in the asylum system for 10 12 15 years they're gonna just hurry up and make sure that their things are processed right to make room for all the legal route <laughs> obtaining refugees that are coming in now which aren't many um the thing is is oh, i just had it up front sorry just had I was looking at my phone on it now I just missed it. Uh councils need more more time. They need 36, they need over a month um to really process housing requests, to process any kind of additional support that they need. So there will be people out on the streets. There will be people who can't speak English out in the streets. And let me tell you what. Uh, my partner works in homelessness and no shade to the people who are homeless, but there is racism out there in the homeless population out on the streets. There's anti-immigrant sentiment, which is really depressing and it makes me so sad, but this is not going to be good. Um, before, before the summer recess, the Equalities Committee at Scottish Parliament was really looking at how they can help refugees and asylum seekers more. So in a way, getting them out of the mirror's accommodation, that private accommodation in hotels is a good thing. However, um, there's not going to be time to catch everybody. And and Glasgow is so oversaturated, not oversaturated because like people like Glasgow, right? And, and refugees are welcome. But um, if you look at, there's, there's a little uh, online tool if you pretty much linked to the articles glasgow has oops i think it's 4636 is that right 27 it's 4627 people mm -hmm. in asylum accommodation so there's a lot of people already in the system but now think of all the people that have been like think of kenmere street that guy had been here for like 20 years right um i think it was hamza yusuf had said quite recently in, in a speech, whether I can't remember where he made it, but he met somebody who had been here for 12 years and couldn't work. It's great, but these people are not going to be able to work until their paperwork is processed. And that is not what the UK Home Office is talking about. So um, I'm really concerned about this. I've make sure to flag this to your representatives and whatever, um, because we can't talk about this enough. Because first of all, all the local councils need to know about it. Right. And if if there's too many refugees in Glasgow or in Edinburgh, say, and they try and move them. Right. OK, we found you accommodation, but you have to move. 
that's not easy either. If someone's been living in a city for a year, for 10 years, and you're saying you got to move to a different part of Scotland or you're going to be homeless, you Mm -hmm. and your family, that's, it's just inhumane. And it's not a surprise that the Tories are doing this. It's just disgusting. And um, we need to talk about this more. We need to talk about it, like not us here, um, but everybody listening should be talking to their friends and neighbors and elected reps about this. Agreed. And just touching on what you were saying there, because reducing it to seven days when actually the local authorities need 56 days to uh, to process uh, to help people find accommodation. And it takes at least 35 days to start receiving universal credit. So uh, even the time frame as it stands at the moment is too short, which is 28 days. If they reduce that to seven, then they're not going to be able to get access to universal credit and local authorities are not able to help them find accommodation. Um, Connor. I just want to thank Kat firstly for actually putting this on the agenda because this is something I wasn't aware of and I was reading about it before going in here and it is clearly part of the Home Office policy of you know trying to be as punitive as possible some of the most vulnerable people they want to create a hostile environment for asylum seekers um, in the UK we have already seen that with you know stop the boats tramping of the rhetorics and, and of course people will recall just uh, a couple of years ago the huge campaign in Glasgow um, when Serco and other private companies were trying to evict uh, people who had had their asylum uh, refused. And a lot of those people, again, are people who have been waiting for that decision for a long time. Um, the entire asylum system in the UK is, is it's not fit for purpose. It's got to be changed. And we're going to need... Um, I, I actually think this should be a bigger part of the argument for an independent Scotland as well, because you know it's so impossible to imagine now. It's this thing where the latest Tory Home Secretary you always think it's the worst person you could possibly imagine, and then somehow the next one blows them out of the water. Um, this is a country that is probably is no longer in line with the UN Refugee Convention. It's no longer even pretending to care about that fact. And if you look at the speech, I'm sure we'll talk about the Tory conference uh, a bit more later on, but um, the way in which Swella Braverman has been speaking about things that we always accepted were reasons to, to seek asylum in another country, for example, being LGBT from a country that has either state uh, homophobia or transphobia. Um, the fact that that's not even considered uh, a good enough reason anymore is indicative of a, a really, you know, really disgusting and worrying journey that the that British politics has been on. So, um, yeah, I, th- I think in particular the social housing sector and local government workers um, maybe have a big role in challenging this particular change of policy. And trying to push back and all of us should be um you know absolutely speaking to our neighbors speaking to our colleagues about how we push back against this yeah definitely and this is one that i was aware of the change but this was about a year ago when it was first proposed but it's it basically fell off the the radar uh, of, of the mainstream media and then obviously when cat when you pointed out the story I was like, oh my goodness, is this actually happening now? So this is, you know, it was spoken about before, it sort of disappeared and it's popped its head back up again, which is which is really concerning. Um, I'm going to read out the um, Home Office spokesperson re- response to the uh, the article, the Guardian article that this was in. This is horrendous. This is absolutely horrendous. We do not recognise these forecasts. All asylum applications are considered on individual merits. We encourage individuals to make onward plans as soon as possible after receiving their decision whether that is leaving the UK following refusal or taking steps to integrate uh, into the UK following a grant. 
we provide support for refugees to access jobs, benefits and housing. It is absolutely disgusting that that is the response of the UK government, the Home Office within the UK government. However, it's not surprising, given the Home Secretary at the moment. And like you say, Connor, we thought Pretty Patel was bad. Um, Suella Braverman is is far worse, I would say. Um, some of the, the, the rhetoric, obviously, that you're talking about from the Tory conference, we've spoken about Suella Braverman several times, and every single time, it's like you could just insert different words into her speeches. It's the same speech over and over again, but there will be different aspects to elements and it almost seems to be ramping up and ramping up um even worse but this particular policy in itself is so inhumane in terms of not only are these people currently held in quite normally inhumane conditions and you know it's kind of painted as this luxury oh they're in hotels they're using up all these hotels there is no like you know real wash like proper like washing facilities for clothing that you can't cook you're you're you know dependent on food that's being prepared for you which is probably doesn't match the needs or what you're used to eating at all you've got and then you know you've meant to plan a life for when you are you know granted asylum here but it could be anything from like Kat was saying you know it could, the quickest cases are like 18 months and you're going up to years and years so how are you planning your life when you can't work you're, you're given a, essentially an, a, a measly allowance to to survive um and you've meant to plan your life it's just absolutely unbelievable and i absolutely agree that this is one area where the independence movement could completely separate itself from the uk norms and this is the types of things that i would like to see on leaflets to be honest when you talk about um you know whether it be the SNP, whether it be the greens we were saying that this is what independence could look like we could actually welcome people and allow them to integrate into society how have you meant to integrate into a community if you live in a hotel and you're given you know x amount of money essentially pocket money every week how do you integrate without knowing how long it's going to take before you can get a job before you can set up a community because you could be sent to the other end of the country because there's no social housing provisions for you or you know you might not have enough universal credit to get private rent in a particular area so edinburgh for example which is really expensive it's just it's an impossible situation for people and if you know us who are fortunate to, to have homes and, and to have you know some security in our life we find it difficult at the moment in the cost of living crisis how is somebody who's not allowed to to integrate properly in society and be independent and have their own money able to then slot into that system and um, with seven days notice i just don't ah it's just absolutely outrageous absolutely outrageous i'm actually really angry i'm just gonna mute myself for a second well, I, I have something to add about people who say staying in a hotel room is awesome. Um, I'm going to reference this in the next segment as well. So apologies because some people think I talk about this too much. But I I was um, in naval aviation. So I was in a squadron for 12 years of my adult life. I've lived in a hotel for months at a time with nowhere to go. And it sucks. I've lived in a tent. I've lived in like a barracks dorm room. I've lived in a hotel and there's no difference when you're stuck in that little space and you can't cook. There's very little you could do to personalize it. These people aren't getting enough money to, to have means like I got paid per diem. I got paid pretty well. Um, there wasn't much to spend your money on in a tent. You know, you could hand. But um, I bought a lot of movies, a lot of DVDs that were of not good films back then. Um, but 
it's not great. And, and like I said before, the Scottish government and local councils have been, and third sector orgs have been trying to help people. They've been trying to get in, but the way that the uh, private corporation that runs these things makes it very difficult for them to help anyone. So yeah, I think this is something that Scotland does differently. The Scottish government, which are the Greens that SP are trying to do better on already, and they're trying to find ways around it. And this does need to be put on the on leaflets, right? It does need to be made a point. Like we are already trying to do this better. And imagine if we could without being, you know, uh, tripped up at every opportunity by the UK government. But I just wanted to say that about living in a hotel and I was by myself imagine if I had to live in a hotel room with my husband and two children I would go absolutely insane well, we saw the same thing when Ukrainian refugees were being housed on uh, cruise ships and people I think were t making out like that was a luxury experience I cannot think of anything worse than being you know in a confined space for such a long time um, and I'm glad that I think that's been phased out now uh, but I think I think the thing that's really important to stress as well is there's how different this experience we're describing is from the racists this depiction of you know people from foreign countries come here and everything gets handed to them and that's still a view that you come across uh, in the community or online God forbid you ever look at the comment section of a uh, news article where people seem to think it's so easy to get a house or so easy to get a job if you're coming from another country. And we have to dispel that because, you know, as I said before, in the context of a cost of living crisis in which people are looking for easy solutions to the answers that we have, you know, people do get attracted to that. And you have to, to meet that head on um, and try and build a sense of solidarity and show that actually, um, you know, the, the Home Office, it, it's the, the, the fact that they're deliberately, they're deliberately trying to inflame tensions in communities. They're deliberately trying to punish people for coming here and dissuade others from doing the same, even though they're just exercising their, their, their human rights. Um, and we need to build a movement that says, you know, we can have houses for everyone in this country. There's no need for uh, there to be a shortage of homes. Um, what we have is a problem with greed, with uh, runaway landlords, with a lack of investment in social housing, which has all been part of the, the project of privatizing housing. Um, and we've got a lot more in common than, than we have dividing us. So, you know, it absolutely does need to be talked about and to be campaigned on. And I think those that are peddling the myths that, you know, these people can come here and get access to, excuse me, to housing and, and, and to whatever it is that they need, I would argue they themselves haven't been through the social housing system um, because that's not available to anybody, let alone those who are being treated in such an inhumane way by the asylum system. So I think those that that, that start those or, or or the foundations of, of those rumours and, and, and inaccuracies haven't or don't have any knowledge of the system at all. But, um, and, and it's true what you're saying with, you know, if we are trying to or forcing these people to integrate within seven days, you know, into a, a private rent system, which is completely out of control, um, you know, trying to get access to to tenancies. And if you are already on the back foot, like you say, with with language barriers or no permanent employment set up and and essentially not being allowed to work for years, um, that again, that just makes it even more challenging for people to access um housing. I mean, it's just realistically, if you're given seven days and you've got no access to to housing, where have you meant to go? 
And I think it's just such a, a horrifying prospect that, that I can't quite compute that, you know, if you come here with, you know, yourself or, or, or your, your close family, you've got no other support network. And it's like, can you imagine being told you have seven days to find somewhere to live and you have no support network? I just, I find it just. You just absolutely made me just think of something else. Um, Something I didn't know as an immigrant to this country. Um, a homeless person has to have residence and be homeless in a certain town to be eligible for homelessness benefits. It's like an old holdover from medieval times that you, had to, you have to have like a token that you're. So imagine having to be moved and then being homeless. You can't even access homelessness benefits right away because of the archaic system that we live under. It's yeah, it's really worrying. So please be kind to people you see. Um, well, be kind anyways, but have a little bit of extra room in your heart and in your wallet for homeless people coming up here. Definitely. And and if you're not in a position where you can give to people in the street, just is it about eye contact simply saying hello, mm -hmm. asking how they are, buying them a cup of tea, something like that, that can really change their day, you know, because a lot of these people feel that they're completely invisible. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm in a, a position where I can't give to everyone. I would love to be able to do that, but you can at least give them your eye contact and, and, and just a, a positive hello for the day. Absolutely. Our sponsor this week is Sense of Nature Pet Service, based in Central Scotland. Sense of Nature gives you a hands-on, personalised experience with a variety of exciting creatures, from snakes and skunks to tarantulas and turtles. Sense of Nature has something for everyone. They offer sensory sessions, one-to-one -one group sessions, educational encounters for children of all ages, and they are available for private events upon inquiry. Animal welfare is at the forefront of everything they do, and if appropriate, a risk assessment can be carried out at no additional cost prior to your booking. To get 5% off your next booking with Sense of Nature, quote Hollywood Ungagged 5 at time of booking. To contact Sense of Nature, you can do so by email on sense.of.natureinquiries at outlook.com. You can also find them on most social media platforms by searching for Sense of Nature. Okay, moving on to segment three. Um, this story shocked me. <laughs> so, buckle Sorry. up. <laughs> um, there are Police Scotland officers that do not have vetting records, a review has found. Uh, an inspection by the police watchdog has revealed some officers and staff have not been vetted since they started their careers. The force is now being advised to carry out an urgent review to make sure that all officers and staff have been through uh, the proper process. His Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary in Scotland wants uh, vetting to be repeated at least every decade just every decade is absolutely insane. Police Scotland's Deputy Chief Constable Alan Spears said that the safeguarding of the forces valuables and uh, values and standards has never been stronger and that the HIICS rightly highlights the high standards of vetting. The, the, the review has found and uh, recommended that basically they've included that there is no easily identifiable requirement for officers or staff to notify of any off-duty criminal convictions, offences or charges. There is no requirement to report relevant changes of circumstances such as a change of partner or change of address. There is no process 
for reviewing vet and clearance following misconduct, and there is no system for the withdrawal or suspension of recruitment then. I am absolutely in awe by this. It's absolutely insane. Obviously, this story comes uh, in sharp focus because of the convictions of Saber Ivarard's killer Wayne Cousins and the multiple rapist David Carrick, um, which led to a national check by all police, police officers right across the UK. Connor. Yeah, it's pretty shocking. <laughs> um, I think we should put that in the context of, uh, I think it was earlier this year and in recent years, that there have been whistleblowers talking about sexism, uh, sorry, culture of sexism and misogyny inside Police Scotland. And that is both officers to other officers and also in dealings with the general public. Um, I think we should also put it in the context of, we know through the... Um, undercover policing inquiry taking place in England and Wales, that there has been effectively uh, state-sanctioned sexual abuse by police of undercover officers uh, tricking women into relationships, sometimes for years, sometimes having children, um, something that is apparently much more widespread than was, was believed to be the case. Um, and there's a remarkable lack of accountability and transparency in Scotland around that too, because we actually haven't had an undercover policing inquiry in Scotland. And if we want to look at the killing of Sheku Bayo, um, which was in 2015, is now 2023, and the inquiry is about midway, from my understanding. Um, I think there is a perception in Scotland, there's like a popular concept of the Scottish police are kind of a cuddly, uh, you know, force. It's nothing like, you know, those police in America or in England, which is a different thing in, in Scotland. Um, you know, we have policing by consent and everything's nice and nothing ever goes wrong. And we've got to shatter that conception because... Um, we need that there's been a process over the last 10 years this April I believe was the 10th anniversary of the creation of Police Scotland the centralization of um, all of our regional police forces uh, and we do have to deal with the fact that that's come with uh, a massive gap of transparency of accountability um, policing has to be uh, held accountable uh, on a local level people need to have confidence and faith and you know, the fact that they haven't even properly vetted people who are officers who are in a position of of, uh, of power. Uh, and you might make the point, you know, if, if Scottish police, you know, they're not routinely armed to the degree they are in other places. But if you look at any press release that's ever been put out by the Police Federation, uh, the kind of the pretended trade union for, for Scottish police, and every single one, it's like 90% of officers surveyed, they want to have a gun at all times. They want to have more tasers. They want to have more... Um, crowd control power, you know, we've been in the context of who are these people <laughs> that want all these things and how do we know we can trust them with that? Um, someone's got to interrogate that. Um, I think one of the things I also thought is quite uh, funny is that every so often now you see the BBC doing stories about policing that are credited to 1919 magazine, um, which is presented as Scotland's crime and uh, justice, criminal justice magazine. It's funded by the Police Federation they, they claim that it's an independent magazine, but it's entire 100% of its funding comes from the Police Federation. Uh, and so where is the, you know, where are the grassroots organisations, where are the NGOs that are actually challenging um, Police Scotland on an accountability basis from the other side? I'd, I'd love to know, um, because it's a serious issue and it's not really getting the, the airing it should. Okay. So... <laughs> Unfortunately, when I read this article and, and the press release, I was very jaded in my outlook of saying, oh, this is coming out right now because they want their funding. 
that's it. Like there's been funding cuts proposed and that they're like, well, look, we need funding for this vetting stuff because we've been messed up. Um, I've said it before, as an immigrant, I wouldn't call the police. Um, maybe if one of my children were dying, I might call the police, but I don't know why I'd need to call them and not the ambulance, right? So I and and this the police Scotland is not like the police in the US, which are even worse, but I still don't think that they're there to protect me. Right. They're there to protect people with property. They're there to protect people who are citizens. Um, I'm not I'm not a big fan of the police. It didn't surprise me that this vetting stuff happened. Like I said before, uh, having been in the military, I'm used to all sorts of organizational dysfunction. And, you know, people are promoted just to the level where they're on a, uh, not effective anymore. Right. To one level above of where they're good at their job. Um, but even in the Navy, man, we had, they, they rescanned our records, right? Um, there needs to be a way to flag this, but I don't want them to get any more funding. I, I would rather the police, all the community, the pastoral, pastoral support and, and community care to go to, I don't know if it's the national care server. I don't know where it would specifically go, but, um, I don't, I don't want the police to get any more funding. And, and like you said, Connor, like there's a big lobby, there's a big police lobby. And that's another thing that um, Americans have in common is that the police lobby in the U S is pretty out of control. Uh, I don't know. Maybe they're connected. Maybe they're not. Maybe they just have the same goals and, and borrow from each other. Um, but this is just more of the same I, it's just tiring to me to read this stuff because i i read it not i didn't get angry i just said of course of course they're not flagging this of course they're not vetting people properly or giving them a progress report or an evaluation every five years or anything like that of course um so i guess i'm being more of a a gloomy nihilist about this <laughs> than i usually am yeah, I think when I read about this, I was genuinely shocked. And what I was more shocked about was that we're probably finding out about it, right? Because, you know, as somebody who researches organizations, I, I, I research the real work, the reality of what people go through at work, right? And every single workforce is, is a facade, right? Because we'll have all these rules and regulations and, and patterns in, in place, but actually underneath it, it's just absolute disorganization and, and generally because of lack of resources right and and all public sector organizations will be the same uh, and therefore the police will will be a reflection of that because the police exist within the reality that you know that, that, that our work takes place in but the fact that we're finding out about it and the fact there is no records i think that was the the one that i was like you would think, okay, at least there would be something, you know, you know, just even like a, a bit of paper with some ticks on it, there would be something, but you know, there is actually something with, with, with don't have betting records, right, which is just absolutely terrifying. And I think what the most terrifying thing about this is, is the fact that the power that these people hold over people in the street, right? So this is not just vetting for people who are working with vulnerable people who might be in a medical setting, because there still has to be admission you have to go somewhere to then be under the power of these people these are you know police are the people that can that police society right you know and to me that just is absolutely terrifying and i think 
when we and it's true what you're saying because some people seem to think that police scotland is is different from from you know the terrible met that we've been reading loads about well actually the met is just under a lot more scrutiny because of a lot more high profile cases that just so happen to have happened there right and it's the the, the biggest police force it operates in london and it deals with a lot of of real strange specifics whether it's like you know security with the royal family all these different things right so but why would our police force be any different and then is it because what scotland is like you know hot fuzz where it's just this nice country place and the nice little policeman just sort of chills and you know whatever it's it's not we have you know glasgow is is, is one of the biggest cities you know um in, in the uk and the reality is is just not there and I, and I believe and don't quote me on this please don't arrest me but I think that um, Police Scotland has one of the highest um, issues of people in custody as in deaths as in um, the um, people who receive um, abuse within uh, within custody percentage of the population uh, and those who are arrested so there is Police Scotland is is just as problematic as every other police force, right? I wouldn't say it's any worse than any others. It's just as problematic as it is. And if you have uh, a, an organisation with so much power over ordinary people, then there's going to be abuse of power. So if you've got the risk of abuse of power, you have to make sure that the vetting processes are in place so it was to protect the population. But of course, this is this is just highlighting that's not the case. Um, what's really interesting now is that the HMICS is now calling for the Scottish Government to introduce legislation which would allow Police Scotland's Chief Constable to dispense with the service of an officer or staff member who cannot maintain suitable vetting. What just happened to old-fashioned HR policies, <laughs> like where you could dispense someone from, from, from work if they've not have the, the the correct processes in place it just baffles me that now we're we're you know we're going back and forth and it seems it does kind of seem like that's a pushback on on the scottish government a little bit they're saying please give us more power so we can do this well actually i think we should have a bit of review of the types of powers that the police actually have over the general population um as things stand and i would definitely like to see them um address some of the issues which has been highlighted there particularly misogyny homophobia transphobia racism all these different things and uh and please can we just have the basics where these people are being vetted any other thoughts on this horror it's just to add as a, as a i agree with your point but we need to think about the role of of, of police and why i think as cat was referring to there you know Sometimes you get the police sent out for things that the police shouldn't be dealing with at all. You know, for example, you can have people in a mental health crisis and the police are the ones doing a wellness check rather than um, medical professionals. And there's just no reason for it. Uh, and, and it's not something that you can control. And then, unfortunately, I've been in the position where I've had to phone the police and I'm not someone that's inclined to, to phone the police because they're used as this kind of stopgap for everything. But the, the basis of, of police... They're the ones that can use force. Their whole idea is that they solve problems through violence of some form or another. Um, and you can't separate this from the fact that Scotland actually has one of the highest incarceration rates in Western Europe. And that's common to the whole of the UK. Um, but it's very rarely talked about, you know, why do we have so such a high proportion of the population um, in Scotland in prison? Uh, we really need to rethink the way that we, you know, 
that we try to deal with problems that we have in society instead of relying on everything to be dealt with through the police and prisons. Uh, and I really hope that, that we can try and shift against the, the criminal justice lobby or the police lobby, really, um, that want that to be the case. I was just going to add that I don't think that I took the same thing away from the movie Hot Fuzz that you did, Brian. <laughs> Because the police absolutely were the problem and the, the idyllic thing was all a facade. <laughs> yeah, it's the, do you know when, the, right at the, the start of the film good. and then when he gets sent to the countryside and it's just this little policeman and, and he's bored because he's, you know, the, there's not much happening and whatever. To be fair, the last time I seen that film was probably about 15 years ago or when it first came out. So, you know. Um, the police were complicit in... Um, the community council like murdering anyone that stepped a foot out of place to keep their facade up so <laughs> well obviously that was obviously lost on me but do you know what like i'm just it was just that start of the film when he, i think because he was in the city and he gets sent to the the country yeah. and then he's like oh this is so boring like you know that's yeah. the initial sort of that was that's where i was going with that one <laughs> um but i totally get what you're saying brian that even if the vetting were in place usually organizations don't keep up with those standards. So the fact that the standards aren't even there, that's why I said vetting, whatever, put vetting in place, but there's so much more than that that needs to be done. Um, it needs to be a culture. And like, I, I don't know much about the culture inside the police because I avoid them. So yeah. avoid dealing with that. I'm all about uh, supporting our firefighters. So... Yeah, I just wanted to prevent myself from being arrested. I'm just going and looked at the uh, the assertion I made earlier, which is from a news article in November 2021, where the BBC says that uh, a review from the uh, from Glasgow University has Scotland had one of the highest rates of death in prison in Europe, uh, and there still needed to be uh, systemic changes to the responses of these deaths. So I just want to clarify myself so uh, there's no police officers coming to my door. There is an actual source there. Anything else to add on the uh, non-vetting of our police force? Or individuals in the police force, don't want to get arrested for that either. Okay, moving on to segment four. I don't have like a formal introduction to here and I wanted to try and keep this light because the amount of over-analysis of the Tory conference, I really don't think it deserves to be taken with the, the uh, I don't know, the professionalism that some journalists have attempted to have with their analysis. But basically, I want to focus on the unhinged content, okay, mm -hmm. from the Conservative Party conference. There was a few highlights that I've seen, which is what I describe for our listeners in case they haven't seen them. Obviously, Penny Mordaunt, which we'll go into a bit more detail about the stand-up and fight um, <laughs> speech, which was the warm-up, right, for the, oh, for the Prime Minister, which is just even more unhinged. The fact that Rishi Sunak's wife came on first when they were expecting Rishi Sunak to come out and done a little warm-up speech and said that Rishi Sunak was her best friend and stuff, which I thought was... I mean, Sarah Brown done that for Gordon Brown, I think it was, um, uh, during the when he was Prime Minister, that very short period where he was Prime Minister. So there could be a theme there <laughs> where, you know, things are not looking good in the polls. Let's just get our partners to go out and say nice things about our partners. But there was also um, the one of my top ones that I've seen was it was a, a, a conference attendee had a, a badge that said Tory scum on it. And basically she was like, I'm reclaiming this um, so people can't call me. Tory scum and I was just like oh go on girl. with yourself sister <laughs> I was like this is 
tragic but it really really made me laugh because I was like this is you know you can reclaim words right you know the whole thing around queer still a slur and it's not a slur um but Tory scum is not really something you want to call yourself but you know you, you do you um so yeah I just want to throw it out there and uh, and see what you're all thinking go to cat first normalize ring around the tub <laughs> I mean I I personally am not one to say Tory scum just because I I think they're people and that makes it worse, right? To judge them as human beings because they make choices like we do every day. But yeah, trying to, I don't think she understands what reclaiming that label means. Um, Penny Morden's speech, man, it was, I watched it with someone else. If you haven't seen it yet, watch it with another person uh, because it's even more fun. And I just watched um, 30 Rock, which is a great show. And Queen Latifah is on there at, as a guest star and is a politician. And, and she kind of, she has these things where she does it repeatedly. She goes, I might know not know where I'm going with this. And I might have lost my place in my speech. But if I keep speaking in this tone, it will lift people's spirits and produce enthusiasm. And I feel like that's what she, Petty Mordant was trying to do, but it wasn't great. The stand up and fight stand up and fight because when everyone in the world stands up and fights that's when we win like ooh, interesting insight into her brain um it was yeah it was weird but i think she might have the most charisma of all the tories which is saying you know what i mean can, she should have a sword while she was saying it <laughs> yes exactly can you imagine like rishi sunak trying to give that speech or swell brave ribbon or any of them like she she's actually the the same candidate for the next story leadership which is horrible like i guess it's better when they're saying nonsensical nothings than directing actual hate towards people and that's all i can say i didn't know that she said that as a warm-up to rishi sudak coming out and then like tiny little rishi walks out like doo, 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 doo. <laughs> he's like not a fighter that's not what i think of when i see him um I think of someone who's been spoiled his whole life and said, I want to do that and is very, very bad at everything he wants to do. Um, like most, like many of the Tories, honestly. Um, yeah, I mean, I like focusing on on this speech and not the others because the others were even worse. Um, shout out to the word cloud today. Um, so now we have a set. We have the Lib Dems, we have the Tories and we have Labour who are Tory like, you know, right now. And a lot of them said, who are you going to stand up for? A, a lot of Keir Starmer's, a lot of space on Keir Starmer's word cloud said the rich, just like Rishi Sunak did. Who do you think this person stands for? So anyways, I don't have much more to say on Tory conference. I have a friend at labor conference right now who's not a labor party member. And I just want to send out positive vibes to her because it can't be fun. Connor. Yeah, I mean, well, to go back to Tory Scum, first of all, I have I have been in the position many times of just shouting that outside Tory party conferences. And uh, if they want me to keep going with it, you know, I'll happily I'll happily indulge them if they want to uh, reclaim that. And that's, well, that'll be the only term I use from them for now on. Um, but on, on a more serious note, I think the the takeaway from the Tory party conference is is 
radicalized to the right in a way that um, would have been unthinkable even 10 years ago. Uh, or, you know, contrast this with David Cameron and this kind of cuddly liberal conservatism that he was meant to be the face of. And you can see, you know, the, the massive shift to the right. And, you know, we have, a, was it a columnist in the Financial Times this, uh, this week saying that Britain has no far right movement? Just kind of loony stuff. We do actually have a far right movement and it is incubated inside the Conservative Party and it makes up a massive amount of their membership. The fact that um, what well, we saw Nigel Farage dancing along with Pretty Patel and uh, Rishi Sunak, the ultimate humiliation, him saying, you know, maybe we could welcome Nigel Farage back to Tory party membership and Farage being the one to say, no, actually, I'm fine. Um, that is, that's, that's worse than actually if you rejoined. It's uh, it's desperate. It's it's trying to claw back people who are beyond the pale um, to win a certain sense of legitimacy who don't even want to be associated yet. Uh, and you see this uh, moment in Rishi Sunak's speech where he was throwing out the transphobic shibboleth. Oh, it's all common sense. A man's a man, a woman's a woman. Um, absolutely appalling. More appalling is the fact that Keir Starmer couldn't actually bring himself to condemn that. Um, but it's we've got a Tory party where the only thing they've got left is culture war, uh, far-right um, dog whistles. Uh, you know, we've seen... Some, some of them didn't even make sense to me. I had to have someone from, I can't, you would probably have got it, but someone from America to explain to me what Suella Braverman was on about when she said we can't have British cities turning into Seattle or Los Angeles. Or was it San Francisco? I'm just, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, I think Seattle and San Francisco have safe, safe injection sites, which, oh no. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, that was, um, they had bad homelessness problems and then had safe injection sites and that did nothing, you know, that's fine. Um, I, you made me totally forget about the the picture, the image that is of Tory conference where Swell Braverman standing on a, on a seeing eye dog's tail. I don't know if anyone else has seen that. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Just sums her up perfectly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's just that the whole conference was just filled with these moments and, you know, the one thing is, you know, this is a government that clearly realizes it knows it's on its last legs. Part of this is people jostling for a nice position when the Tories are in opposition. They want to be the next leader or they want to be close to the next leader. They're all laying out their pitches. Um, but that in itself is a, a worrying thing because you've got uh, the promise of a, of a Starmer government that isn't going to be radically different from what we have now. And the Tory party in opposition that is going to be virulently right wing just waiting to get back in and unleash total horrors um and and so so few in the you know, in the labor opposition in the media seem kind of willing to confront this for what it is um so i find that all uh all quite dispiriting and i hope you know i mean i, I hope we can get the Tory stuff done in, in the same way that the, the good voters in rutherglen and hamilton west did uh, but it just goes to show that like that is just the start of a of a battle to be fought and we need to bring this into the messaging of the independence movement because you know i don't want to see that politics on the opposition benches either you know i don't want to see it as part of our, our political landscape at all yeah i think with the tories heading towards opposition so we could you know there seems to be a consensus that the tories are not going to win the next election obviously we've still got well who knows how long but you know, there's still a year in there, so let's just, I think, I can, 
I can't see the Tories winning the next election, but let's not count out now because you know UK politics. I think over the last sort of ten years has just been really really hard to call, um, on where things are going. And obviously, you think about you know the John Major general election where it was like a shoe in that that Labour was going to come in and they actually just held on. So, you know that's always a a real worry and a real concern. Um, but when they're in opposition, that that can actually when they can become more unhinged and what can actually start to happen is even more of the far right and it doesn't just dog whistles it becomes foghorns and i think this is what you know can potentially be more disruptive and what we've seen from labor is that they can actually sometimes just go along and and sort of be like well that's such a terrible idea because it would cost too much and you know it's not you know the managerial approach to things when actually they should just call a spade a spade and say that it's you know it's, it's absolutely inhumane and horrible policies so you know the tories heading to opposition is not the sort of okay we can breathe out and you know perhaps just take a moment to think we don't have this in, in government anymore but then we realize that labor is actually just you know a wet flannel and the the, the tories are actually calling the shots and, and could pull labor even further to the right Um, going back to the unhinged um stuff from from conference the the picture of the the suella bourbon standing on the dog's tail um i think you know it's kind of really summed up just how absolutely heinous this person is um there was also the the, the sort of chap who was speaking to owen jones that was playing into in a sort of polite non directly linking way talking about great replacement theory as well, which I thought, and then there's people sharing this, saying, ha ha, this person took on Owen Jones, and look at them, and you're like, do you not understand what this person is saying? And um, Do you not get it? This is far-right chat, right? This is, you know, laying the foundations for more far-right, and, you know, even trying to think that multiculturalism is inherently a good or bad thing is just, it's just a thing, it's what it is, like, you know, multiculturalism is not a bad thing, like, you know, to even go down that route, you're 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 sort of laying the foundations for 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 the far right narrative, and you know, yeah, it's just so so bizarre. And I think where you get these kind of talking points, where you get young and this quote unquote young bright articulate Tories, um, you know, saying things in a slightly different way and dressing up in a different way, and people are sharing this stuff, saying, yeah, this chap knows what he's talking about, and then actually is really problematic in what these people are saying. So, you know. We can laugh and joke about it. The fact you know, Pretty Patel, who was a pretty heinous um Home Secretary, dancing with, with Nigel Farage, who's an absolutely appalling person, um and but even it sort of bled into some of the speeches from the main stage. You know, Jeremy Hunt highlighting that nobody should have their bank account closed because of their political views, which didn't happen. You know, it's just you know, it's just plain to the gallery, and it's that sort of trying to motivate the base so they can try and save as many seats as they can so they don't you know perhaps deny the Labour Party of an overall majority or or whatever that might be it's the whole thing was just horrendous but turning to the, the sort of main points of, of Rishi Sunak's speech you know the 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 whole trans rhetoric again playing to the gallery that got the biggest cheer which means it's been spoken about on politics live and all these other shows and that's the point of making these types of phrases right so they can then be jammed into all the interviews that happen uh, on the media rounds afterwards, which is just absolutely appalling. And then eventually admitting that the HS2 um, extension wasn't going to be wasn't going to go ahead after days of speculation. It's just the worst politics I've ever seen. You know, you went to Manchester to announce that 
he just too is never going to make it to Manchester. It's just the most bizarre, um, you know, politics I've ever seen in my life. And then announcing all of these um, policies which had already been announced and then cancelled and then repurposed. And it's just bizarre, desperate. And, but unfortunately, it's setting the the narrative that that labor has to respond to and of course they're too timid to respond to these things in a radical way they themselves could have been saying this is absolutely ridiculous we need to do this and i'm not a huge fan of hs2 as it stands i think that you know the fact that it, it was starting to be built in london was always going to be problematic anyway the fact it was never going to link directly into wales straight away or head straight up to scotland i know that there was uh, potentials where it could have been linked in the future but you know if these processes are taking us you know 15 20 25 years to even get certain legs done and then you're not talk even talking about extending it to to scotland and then into wales for, for you know for longer than that that's not a good investment it's not worth it it's not good but yeah we did need the the, the capacity on on the old infrastructure for freight and for more local services but for goodness sake like start these where they actually are needed and then you know connect up the dots and then uh, alleviate the 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 old uh, capacity. So the whole thing was just an absolute shit show. And now we've got labour conference about to kick off. Um, the only thing I would say so far is you've got Angela Rayner with an absolute serve of a red dress is the only thing that I've, I've got from the the coverage so far. It's a good look, but other than that, I, I'm not seeing anything coming out of the labour conference. Will there be anything that comes at the Labour conference? I don't know. <laughs> so um, I'm sure we can have that discussion next week. Any other thoughts before we wrap up as it's getting late this Sunday evening? Yes. I wanted to ask Go Connor on. who his favourite Roman emperor is. Famous <laughs> oh. put you up to this. No, I just I, I was the one who brought it up in the first place. It just fascinates me and I love it. And how often do you think of the Roman Empire? Because Brian and I think about it about once a week right now when we record this. And that's it. Um I don't know I don't have a, a favorite Roman Empire. I don't think I have enough of uh, a reference point. And I, I say that's something that I did actually do uh Latin and classics in school and I enjoyed that a lot. But I have to say, I don't think about the Roman Empire very much in my day-to-day life. And I think I'll, you know, there's such a thing where some some people get really into the Roman history in a way that makes me feel a little uncomfortable. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And uh, yeah, I'm not one of those people. I'm I'm not accusing anyone. David's not here to defend himself. I would never suggest anything untoward about his interest in the Roman Empire. (laughs) I mean, I think he's quite happy to, to admit it. And, and, and to revel in it like I think this is something that's not at all harmful I think fine you know um but I do remember like driving through rural America and my grandpa or my dad going oh look it's like the aqueducts in the Roman Empire when you see it something with that sort of structure and and now I think of it now and I'm like oh that was an interesting thing to say <laughs> I'll say my favorite Roman anti-emperor is Boudicca there we go oh there we go yeah yeah, I, I can't get on board with this conversation because I don't know enough Roman emperors, emperors at all. I basically ask every man I meet now. Well, like all, all my acquaintances, like if I meet for lunch and stuff and it's like, so how often do you think of it? Just because I find it hilarious. My husband doesn't think about it. And if I asked him who his favorite was, I'm pretty sure he'd tell me to fuck off. So <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. 
Mine's is always. Have you got like... your own favorite now, Kat? No. No. You just, My you favorite just... emperor was Palpatine because he was shitty at it and he was deposed and then it destroyed the empire. Like, I don't think empires are good. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> like, because he was imaginary. Yeah. That's why he's my favorite. <laughs> uh, except they brought him back in that most recent one, which is stupid, but we'll let that lie. Oh, yeah. I don't recognize him. <laughs> I don't recognize yeah. any of the new stuff as real Star Wars except for Andor, of course. Oh, yeah. There we go. Yeah, so this is another conversation I have no reference point to i'm afraid i mean if you're asking me like what my favorite drag queen was i would i would definitely be able to to dive into that conversation but brian have you ever watched the cutting edge the film no (gasps) well the same guy who wrote that wrote andor and you don't have to like star wars it's about fighting fascism and i just can't recommend it enough it's like what we need in pop culture like how we need music how we need all this different stuff to like to reinvigorate us that's what andor is to me andor i would highly recommend it even if you haven't watched other star wars stuff not least because they literally have a planet that is basically a stand-in for scotland <laughs> and they wage guerrilla warfare on this while talking about how they cleared off the people and uh, moved them into new towns and uh it's excellent it's the closest and they filmed it in scotland as well and they've got scottish actors in it. You know, it's the closest thing we're ever going to get to a bit of Scottish revolutionary propaganda. It was made by Disney. Well, I did not see that twist coming at the end. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mean, you're you're selling it. You're selling it. I will consider this. And uh, I'm not really a huge film person, like my films. It's a series. Is it? Oh, well, there you go. I didn't even know it was a, a series. So, you know. I, I am just terrible at these types of conversations. I mean, when it comes to <laughs> films, like my favourite film is Muriel's Wedding. It's a film from 1994. And my reference point to, to contemporary films is, and, and programmes in general is absolutely tele- ter- terrible. I don't even have a television. So they are. It's wild. That's just how wild and crazy I am. <laughs> Thank you very much for joining us. It's getting late, so we're going to wrap up there. And uh, thanks very much, Connor. Thanks very much, Kat. And we'll... Uh, I don't actually have... Damn it, I don't have the script for the end. <laughs> you know it. Listen to last week's. It's got all the important information at the end where you can email us. You can tweet us at at, under... <laughs> at <laughs> underscore ungagged. Just contact us there because we can, we can do anything from there. Got any ideas for next week? Want to... Hear about our newsletter? Just tweet us. Tweet us. We'll get back to you. <laughs> our newsletter. Yes, that. That. Fab. Thank you very much. Good night. Bye. Bye. <laughs>